Thanks for choosing this podcast from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo on Father's Day 2021. I hope you enjoy and reach new heights in Jesus. get baptized today after service, praise the Lord. And so I ask you to address your uh, salvation today as you're here with God. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you know that you're due to be baptized and you have not been, then you should be uh, thinking about that and letting the Lord speak to you on that topic as we go forward today throughout the service. Also asking you, as we always do, to reach new heights in Jesus while you're here today. Individually, we each have another step to take. You're still here, which means God's still got a plan. And then... Nobody, maybe else but God and you can figure out what that plan is. But we can work together as a team, uh, consult His Word, pray, and search out uh, our next steps. And so we're reaching the heights of Jesus today. So it's Father's Day, and I felt uh, convicted of this and also didn't didn't talk to anybody about it. So in light of that, as we go through our service today, we're going to let the ladies lead in prayer. Because this is what blesses me in my family. 
when my family steps up and follows the Lord. As a dad, that blesses me. And so we're going to allow some of our ladies to lead the prayers today. And you're like, no, no, don't call on me because I didn't tell anybody in advance. So we're going we're gonna to take the easy way out and we'll let Alicia lead our opening prayer. And then we'll come back and I'm not going to tell anybody who the one in the middle is going to be. So praise God. So you'll be paying attention and alert. All right? So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing us here together. And thank you for bringing the fathers into our lives that we do have. I thank you for um, any new faces that we have here today. And Caitlin stepping up to be baptized. Um, I want to ask you to be with all of us as we go about our lives. The pain that we have, the struggles that we have. Just keep uh, help us keep in mind that we are doing what we do for you. And bring us back together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> Alright, would you stand and sing with me on this next song?
Today we're doing things a little bit differently, and so at this point, Tom, I'd like to turn it over to the Sherry, who's going to read a little bit of a Father's Day dedication, followed by worship of another kind. So be ready for that. Okay, I
My hands will be amazing just like my hands. Amen. Put a little thought into who I gave what poem, just so you know. Um, those of you who know my story, I didn't have the greatest dad examples. Um, my dad left when I was six months old because he realized he was a homosexual. Um, I had a stepdad who eventually adopted us, and he was an alcoholic. But in God's great, amazing plan, I had an amazing grandfather who stood in and was that God example for me. And some of you may have that as well. And your dads are not perfect. No one's dad is perfect. Nobody is perfect. But we have some amazing dads here in our church that teach us, guide us, are tough when they need to be, are gentle when they need to be, work alongside us. Nothing touches my heart more than to see dads and children working together for the Lord. It's just an amazing blessing. Um, Ariana's going to come up and pray for us, and then we have some gifts. And since we usually do the oldest or the youngest child, and being a middle child, I know how much we're always left out. We're going to do the middle child if there is one. <laughs> and if there's two, then they can both come up. And if there's not, Ty, you're just always it, dude. <laughs> he always gets to be it. Okay, so I always going to pray for us. And then the middle children can come up and pick out a gift for their dad. We have journals for you dads because you have many, many important things to teach us. You can use them. For sermon notes, you can use them for Bible study, you can write funny stories, you can write your project list. I don't care what you write in them. But write in them knowing that you are loved and you are appreciated. Ariana. Ariana. Let's pray. Pray for that. affected me when I was a young Christian as a man and I came to the church was I couldn't sing. Someone would say I still can't, but the bottom line is I do it anyway. And I, as I stood in the congregation at East Little Baptist Church before I was saved, and I looked around and I saw men singing. And my dad always used to sing uh, things like uh, she wore a yellow ribbon and uh, she'll be coming around the mountain and songs like that when I was growing up. But I kind of thought that was just a joke, you know what I mean? Like we had fun with those songs, and it was always fun. There was not, really nothing about uh, God, per se. We used to sing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, but I didn't even know that was about God or about Elijah or anything like that. And so when I come to the church, I had to break through a barrier um, to be a man and to be able to sing praise to God. And I submit to you that it is entirely possible, when we talk about what dads like the most, that what God maybe likes the most is when a man breaks through his barriers and sings praise to the living God. Okay? 
So I'm going to show you a video of some men doing that. And if we got the right one, we had internet trouble. Our internet in the building is out, so we had to we had to hook in a techie, and they literally are running the internet through my tablet through the computer. So praise God for that too. But um, that being said, if we have the right video, you're going to see some Marines singing what is one of my favorite worship songs. And I would encourage you. These are men. They know what they're facing. They know what they've been through. They're in the prime of their life, most of them, and they are praising a holy God. I would encourage you to join them in praising God. And the worship team is amongst us, so we should be able to whisper to you. Right?
we need the words. Because we don't know the words well enough, apparently. And so we're going to do it again. Are you ready? Alright, here we go. This, you won't have the Marines to lead you this time. You're going to have to find it in yourself. And here they come.
thank you for joining me in that uh, sort of experiment. I'll just bless an opportunity to worship. Praise God. There is no God like Jehovah. At this time, we're going to transition. We'll be tithes and offerings, a little more worship, a little bit more like what you know God has led our particular church to or whatever like that. But I hope that that encouraged you. And so at this time, I go standing back and I go, okay, Lord, speak to me. Who's it going to be? And so uh, this is who it's going to be. I need three ladies in the room who will volunteer, and we'll go right in order. One, two, three. Three ladies who will volunteer to pray for us at this time. There's one. Jerry's first. Who's second? Graham's second. I don't know your first name. I'm sorry. Nancy. Nancy, okay. So, Jerry, Nancy, and? <laughs> and once they're all volunteered, somebody who's Jerry's phrase. Oh, no. One more. Come on. Be brave. I'll do it. All right. So, there we go. Sherry, Nancy, Amalia. Here we go. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the people in the room, for the loving attitude, for the worship together, Lord. We thank you for the time and the ability to be here. We thank you for the weather, even though it's a little muggy, Lord. We thank you for the warmth and the ability to get out and do things and be active for you. We love you, Lord, and we pray to you in Jesus' name. I thank you, Father, for being the Father for this church body. I thank you, God, for leading them and the young people, the young dads that are here today. I pray that you have a special message for them. And Lord, that they can bring their children into the house of God. And Lord, they can raise them up to call you Father. I thank you, God, for your anointing upon this church body in this school. As where my roots begin from a janitor that brought me to church. That was the janitor of the junior high school. Lord, these are the roots where we can come where we can sit at your feet and bathe in your presence. I thank you, God, for each and every family that is represented here today. I pray, Lord, that this is a Father's Day that goes down in history for them, and that they made the decision to continue in their path to follow in your footsteps. Bless this congregation, bless this church body as they grow and as they minister to the multitudes that you will send. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the sunshine. I thank you for this muggy humidity that's got us all sweating and this gorgeous weather that you've given us. Thank you for this place that you've given us to come here to worship you and to honor our fathers today, the fathers that you've given us. And I want to thank you specifically for my father, for the men in this room who have been fathers to me for my life, and for the father of my children who's comforting our child right now. I just ask your blessing, that you watch over them, that you guide their steps and their hands as they teach their children to come and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're not done. God is so good. Amen. All right.
Amen. Well, thank the Lord I didn't come in here today with a sore throat because I would have just ran right out right there. I am very blessed. We are very blessed. So, I am a big um, police drama fan. I like mysteries. Uh, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to read this little book called 60 Second Mysteries. It was like a page and a half of a mystery. And then at the end, the detective always knew exactly the answer. And, you'd, and it, the question was, how did detective so-and-so know that that was the answer? And I would read that story over and over and over again. And I'm like, I don't know how he knows. And then you flip it over and you read it upside down in one paragraph. They explain how he knew. And it's like, duh, the fireman was a woman, you know, or something like that. You know, it's just blows your mind how simple the truth actually is when the mystery is resolved. Today we're going to look at a text of Scripture beginning with a relatively well-known verse. We're going to go 13 verses. And as we do it, we're going to look for means and opportunity. So if you're familiar with detective drama, then you know that means and opportunity are the two things that every suspect must have. They must have a means to commit the crime and an opportunity to commit the crime. But then having a means and opportunity to figure out who the suspect is, also uh, you need kind of need motive. So if you can find means, thank you very much. If you can find means, there's bottles of water going around. This is the replacement. This is the replacement for air conditioning. So praise God for that. You get the air conditioning on the inside. All right. So means, opportunity, and motive. And so whoever you find in the end, unless they're just absolutely nuts, which then would be their motive, they will have means, opportunity, and motive. Okay? And having means, opportunity, and motive will narrow the spectrum. But if you have a hundred people in a crowd and somebody dies, right, might be like a hundred people have opportunity because they're all in the crowd. But then somebody stabbed that person. Now you're down to means. Who could have had the knife? Who might have had the knife? Now you're down to like 25 people who might have been able to have the knife or in position. They had means and opportunity. Then you look at motive and you narrow it down and you say, well, you know, these people don't even know that person, so now we'd rule them out. And this person over here, uh, you know, they're definitely a, a faithful person or a pacifist or whatever. They wouldn't hurt a fly. Uh, and this person over here, and you get down to like five people who had means, opportunity, and motive to kill that person. And then you look into their lives, and eventually that's how you solve the crime. And so that's pretty much how it all goes, unless they give themselves away or something. Uh, means, opportunity, and motive. But we're going to look through this text at means and opportunity. So um, I have been thinking a lot lately, praying a lot lately, about what our spiritual discipline for the six months has been. Because since May 22nd, we've been in the next six months since our anniversary celebration, and we're supposed to pick one of our ten spiritual disciplines to focus on. And as I was praying about it, uh, and I'm not saying this to be convicting or anything or anything like that, but the Lord showed me that we are not, as a body, meditating on Scripture enough. And so for this next six months, that will be our focus. Now, one way to do a focus uh, a meditation on Scripture is to go asking a certain question. Now, that's not the best way to read Scripture overall, because Scripture says what it says, right? But if you go with a certain mindset or asking a certain question of Scripture, then as you think about it, you can... Frame that scripture 
in the knowledge you have of other scripture and in your life. And so that's a way to meditate on scripture is to ask the question. So as we go through, beginning in verse, chapter 5, verse 8, in a moment, we're going to look for the means and opportunity that Paul is talking about. And I, want to, I want to submit to you that this scripture that we're about to read is a lot about means and opportunity, um, but I didn't know that when I began. I, I was meditating on the scripture and praying over it and, as the Lord had led me to it, and the Lord pointed out to me, and when he did pointed out to me, I realized that it's sort of like ties the whole thing together and then we'll come back to the conclusion and see how that is, okay? So, we usually say amen at least, or who or holler or get excited with me as we go to Romans chapter 5. Thank you for being with me. From this point on, we shall let the Lord speak. I hope you've been letting the Lord speak since you walked in the door. I hope you let Him do that all the time. But, here we go. This is His word. Romans 5, verse 8. I will break it down as we go some, but I'm not going to break everything down because we are really looking at it as a meditation on means and opportunity, okay? So if I miss something on means and opportunity, it's okay. You can still get it. Let the Lord speak to you. But I'm going to point out several, okay? His own love. I'm sorry. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's that somewhat famous verse, Okay? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there it is. You may not see it very clearly. The word through, which is usually an indicator of means and opportunity in any sentence, paragraph, text, anywhere, is not in this verse. Okay. However, you'll notice it says that God demonstrates that he showed us his own love. He showed us this. Now, this is coming right after the idea in verse 7 where it talks about how most people will not die for somebody else. Right? But God demonstrates, he, I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but he showed us this way, his own love toward us, how much he loves us in, and how he loves us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you, do you see the means and opportunity? The means clearly was the sacrifice of Christ. That's the means that he uses. The opportunity was to die for us. I submit to you that the opportunity occurred in this verse, not set in a certain chronological moment in time. Normally you're solving a murder and they say, oh, the body died between 8 and 9 p.m., right? Or between 8 and midnight. So it's got, so in order for someone to have means and opportunity, they have to have been available between 8 and midnight. But when Paul writes, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that tells us when the demonstration of God's love took place. And it's not a chronological time. It's not a date. Right? I think it's beautiful that we do not know the exact calendar date of when Jesus was crucified. We have some good hypotheses, and some of them are fairly solid, but we don't know the exact time that he would, and date that he was crucified. There's a reason for that, and Paul shows it to us here. Because the point in time that God had means and opportunity was not a calendar date and time. Shall I prove it? How was David saved? Way before Jesus was ever born, how was David saved? Well, he was saved by trusting in the way that God would make who was Jesus, right? So the date upon which Jesus was crucified is completely irrelevant to David. That doesn't matter to David. What matters is that there was a time period, an era of David's life, and another era of David's life. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says, while we were yet sinners. Now the phrase, while we were yet sinners, would not matter except that we are now not sinners. You see? It wouldn't make any sense to say he did it while we were yet sinners unless there is a time at which you are no longer a sinner. 
Right? So being saved, coming to Christ, being a follower of the Lord, being forgiven of your sins, being declared righteous by God, occurs at a moment of time. From that point on, you are no longer a sinner. Now, does that mean you'll never sin? No. You may sin, and hopefully you will recognize that you have sinned. And when you sin, you have an advocate before the Father who is Jesus. And now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But the bottom line is... He was saying, Jesus died while we were yet sinners. That's the means and the opportunity. You see it? Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So in other words, just as Jesus, having died on the cross to pay the price for sins, now declares us innocent, his the penalty for sin, the judgment is on Jesus on the cross. And because that's true, we shall now be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is a future statement. That means it's not yet happened. So this is not talking about the wrath. And some people use this to say the opposition of God versus our sin in this day. It does not say that Jesus having died on the cross will stop us from facing God's opposition when we sin. That's not what this is about. If you sin against God now, being a believer, you will face God's opposition because you are hurting the person that God loves who is you. Right? When you do what you should not do, God resists you and you face ramifications for it, not because God is mad at you, but because God apparently loves you more than you do. So we're not talking about that. He's talking about a wrath of God, if you will, to come, it's in the future tense, and we will be saved from that wrath of God which is to come through Jesus. Now those of you who have studied the book of Hebrews and we did it together back in the day or whatever, there is a passage of scripture in there that's very clear about this, how the Messiah that we have, the saved, I'm sorry, the salvation is available in Jesus continues to be available, continues to be happening because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. If Jesus had died on the cross for our sins, went to the grave and never came out, then he couldn't be at the right hand of the Father making intercession. His life is now making intercession for us. And that's what Paul is saying. So again, the means, Jesus being alive. That's the means. The opportunity was for him to save us from the coming wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, by the way, before you got saved, you like it or not, you were an enemy of God. Now, God wasn't necessarily your enemy. He wasn't out to be your enemy, but you were an enemy of God. You were doing the opposite, being the opposite, believing in the opposite of what God wanted you to be, do, and believe, and therefore you were his enemy. You were taking people to hell with you, just the same as any other enemy of God. You were offending the people around you. You were spreading the effects of your sin onto your family, etc. before you got saved. Let's not kid ourselves. Before we were saved, we were enemies of God. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Stop right there for one second. So he's saying, if while we were enemies, meaning in the era of our existence, before we got saved, God would send Jesus as the payment, the propitiation, the atonement, the sacrifice for our sins. If he would do that then, while we were not yet saved in a a lost state, then he says much more, or it necessarily follows, would be a good way to say that. It necessarily follows, having been reconciled, because now we have been saved by Jesus, or uh, forgiven, justified, no longer having a sinful nature, we shall be saved by his life, meaning he is continuing to make intercession for us. 11. And now, I'm sorry, and not only this, and this, I mean, I I hung in this verse for a long time and I'm tempted to do it here and now, but I I don't want to because we've got to go all the way through verse 21. 
But it says, and not only this, in other words, there's something more, but it's, it literally says in the Greek, it says, and not only this. It literally says that, word for word. And so that's a huge transition. But we also exult in God. Now, if you go into King James, it says joy in God. We joy in God. And the other translation will be different. And there's a reason that there for that because it's kakamai, which does not actually translate into English at all, right? The Greek word kakamai doesn't translate into English at all. But he says, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the means and opportunity in that verse? The means... We are able to exult in God, Kakatmai. We are able to do that because of what Jesus has done for us. He gave us our means. And we have an opportunity. So he gave us both our opportunity and our means to exult in God. I'm going to come back to that concept later. Through, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God gave us the means and the opportunity through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And that through obviously means means and opportunity. Twelve. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, did you get all that? Plenty of means and opportunity there, right? Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world. So one man sinned, and sin had means and opportunity to enter the world. Follow the logic? Adam gave means and opportunity for sin to enter the world. And death through sin. So Adam gave means and opportunity for sin to enter the world, and then death entered the world through sin. So sin turned around and said, here's your means and opportunity. And death entered the world. By the way, that is what sin will always do. That's the nature of sin, not, not, to, not to get ahead. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? So all people have sinned, and because they all sinned, they give means and opportunity for death to come in and kill them. Not kill them immediately like your heart stops beating, but to break fellowship between you and the Creator. Okay, And then ultimately to die, yes. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. So in other words, from Adam to Noah, and he's actually going to say that phrase, I think, in a minute, but for, uh, for until the law, sin was in the world. And sin is not imputed when there is no law. So it wasn't clear exactly what sin looked like or what it was until the law came. 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. See, death already had its means and opportunity. The law was not the means and opportunity for death to enter the world. Right? Sin was. And sin already existed. Sin opened the door. Sin was the door, if you want to say it that way, was the means and opportunity for death to enter the world. And it was already doing so. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type. In that word, there could be a type, a symbol, a representative, a something that makes it clear, who is a type of him who was to come. So Adam was a type of him, Jesus, who was to come. Adam, sin brought in death. And from the moment of Adam, people sinned and they had the avenue open so death was coming in and, and existing, right? In everybody because they sinned. Even though they didn't sin necessarily in the same way that Adam did, they still sinned. And in sinning, death could get in, right? And it's unless everybody would just suddenly stop sinning and death would go away. It would be amazing. It would be wonderful. I'd love that, right? But it's not going to happen. Right? Because people have a sinful nature. They need Jesus. They need that justification. And by the way, it isn't like if you stop, if you were 
a sinner and you suddenly stopped sinning one day, if that was even possible, if you didn't know Jesus, you'd still be unsaved going to hell because of the sins you committed before that date, right? It's not a chronological thing. Like one day at a certain time, 4 p.m., I stopped sinning. I've never sinned since. Now I'm no longer a sinner. No, it's a chrono- It's a, an era thing. Even though you do not sin anymore, you would still be a sinner because you have sinned, right? When a, there is no, for example, um, statute of limitations on murder. So if you're angry and you're hard at a brother or if you physically murder them, right? you're a murderer and you will always be a murderer and you will never be forgiven of that murder. No one will ever say, well, it's okay that you murdered them. It's been 20 years ago. We don't mind that you murdered them. That's never going to happen. There's no statute of limitations. Right? If people forgive you, then it's, this is another kind of forgiveness. And when God forgives that, he makes somebody no longer a murderer because of the justification, because he puts a penalty for the murder on Jesus. And then stands at the right hand of the Father making intercession for them until they come home. That's how, that's how it actually works. So nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. 15. Wait, let me, let me go back for one second. Because this, this really stuck out in my mind. Notice then, if he is a type of Adam, what is the means and the opportunity? If, if, I'm sorry, if Adam was a type of Jesus, what is the means and the opportunity? To look at Adam and see the need for Jesus. Adam is our means and opportunity to see the need for Jesus. To look at Adam and see that someone, a way that God could make, could come, and that trusting in that way would be sufficient to be saved. A means and opportunity. And that's how David did it, and that's how Moses did it, and that's how... All of those who actually were saved did it. They believed, they saw Adam, they realized, hey, something more is coming. And they trusted in the something more that was coming, not knowing the name Jesus. Okay? All right. That was the means and opportunity. 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Okay? So now we're going to compare the sin that brought in death with something different. And the free gifts there, that word is charis, which is also translated elsewhere in the Bible as grace. The free gift, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by transgression of the one, the many died, so Adam transgressed and through that sin came into the world and then through sin, death came in and lots of people died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So just the transgression, which was sin, brought in death, and many died. But now the gift, the grace that God sent through His Son Jesus comes in, and it overcomes all of that. It triumphs over all of that, is what he's saying. It's different. It's not the same. It's different. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. In other words, he sinned, one sin, death, Judgment. Condemnation. That's it. Right? But, he says, I'll back up just a little bit, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression. Transgression, judgment. Resulting in condemnation. Transgression, judgment, condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions. So all of your sins led you to the grace of Jesus, and the grace of Jesus trumps them all. It's not the same. It wipes them out. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Listen to the phrase, will reign in life. Means and opportunity through the one Jesus Christ. You want to get 
in charge of your life? You want to get things under control? You want to solve the problems that you face? You want to overcome the difficulties that you're dealing with? I'm not saying you're going to wipe them all clean. I'm not saying you're not going to have any problems. You're not going to have any ramifications for the choices you've made. Or I'm not saying you're never going to come up short of money. But here's what happens. When the problems or ramifications and the shortness appear, you can reign literally through those things through Jesus. You can go through the difficulties that you face and still be in charge under Jesus just by being under Jesus. The means and opportunity to overcome and conquer all difficulty lie in the Son of God. That's what he just said. It doesn't matter what you go through. Of course, it matters what you go through on a day-to-day basis, but ultimately, for eternity's sake and for your best benefit, what you're going through does not change the fact if you will just go through it in Jesus. That's it. Verse 18. So then, as through one transgression means an opportunity, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness means an opportunity, there resulted justification of life to all men. In other words, everybody can be saved. doesn't matter where you came from. From what you came through, how young or how old. When we were up in Michigan, uh, Sherry and I were part of a, mem- a church up there called Holt. Um, what was it called? Cedar Street. Thank you. I could. Cedar Street Baptist Church in Holt. And there was a man who came and got saved. He was 78 years old. I'm sorry. He was 76 years old. He lived for two years after that. He died when he was 78. 76 years old. He got on fire for the Lord Jesus. He was forgiven. He was saved. He was living for the Lord. Two years later, he died on his deathbed. Guess what he said? I only have one regret in my entire life. So I'm going to, to be in heaven with the Lord. He didn't regret his sin. And he said, I only have one regret in my entire life, and that is that I waited until I was 76 years old to get saved. doesn't matter how old you are. He's six years old. You're like, I don't know. At six years old, you don't know what a rapist is. You don't know what incest is. You don't know what sex outside marriage is. You don't know what murder is, really, because they've not seen it. Hopefully, a few people have probably, but it's sad. Right, But the point is, most of them don't know what that is. And if you're a good parent, you're probably protecting your six-year-old from being exposed to those kinds of things. Or your one-year-old or your ten-year-old. Right? You're, you're going to cushion the blow and help them to understand what the world is like. The Bible says, be innocent of evil. You don't, you don't throw them in and let them learn how to swim. You teach them how to swim and then throw them in. right? Because that's what, that's what life does. But not knowing... The other side does not mean you can't know who you are, you can't know the fire that you've been through, you can't know that you need Jesus as Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter if you're six, it doesn't matter if you're 76. And it doesn't matter how much money you got or the color of your skin. This is what it literally said. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Jesus had the means and the opportunity, and baby, you better know he's going to take it. And he has saved anyone who will come to him before, during, thief on the cross, and after his crucifixion. Verse 19, almost done with the text. For as through, there's that word again, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, means an opportunity. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous, means an opportunity in Jesus. 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. And so someone might say, okay, now the law, where does this fit in there? Because that's the thing. 
This guy's a Jew that's writing it, right? The law is a thing for him. He was one of the Pharisees and like that. And so it was a big deal. So where did the law come in? And it says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase. And in that, that is a means and opportunity. The law came in. Transgression took that means and opportunity to increase. The law came in that transgression might increase. For where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, the purpose of the law is not to label sin, although that does happen. It's not to tell you what you can do or what you can't do, although that does happen. The purpose of the law is so that grace can abound more. It becomes clear and evident when I read the Ten Commandments and it says uh, certain things I shouldn't do. And probably for me, one of the greatest was covetry and stealing, right? Those are probably two of the things that are in there that I didn't do. I certainly had other gods in my life before I got saved. So those probably were my three favorites. And I would break them. And I read the Ten Commandments and I go, okay, that, that's how I'm living. And that was where it stopped. Like, yeah, that's me. That's how I'm living. But then one day I began to realize that God has a right to call me to a certain kind of behavior because He is the creator of the universe. And I looked at those commandments in a new light and I said, ooh, so what, what that says is if something doesn't change, I'm going to hell. Hmm. My best understanding is I, I don't think I want to go to hell, not for a second, let alone in eternity. What am I going to do about that? Well, there... There's nothing I can do about that because I've already been doing it for 25 years. Got real good at it, in fact. Even if I wanted to try to cut it out, and I did start to try to cut some things out, failed miserably. Even if I wanted to try to cut it out, I don't think I could. I, I, I need something I can't have. Where am I going to get it? Well, is there any chance God would give it to me? Wait, Jesus is the means and opportunity by which I could be freed from that state of being? I'm in. And that's how I got saved. And that's how everybody gets saved. And the law plays a part in that. And it is by no means meant to be thrown out. And as a Christian, it is by no means meant to be dismissed. So that's why I say it does happen that it tells us what to do and what not to do. But it does not save. It increases grace. It gives the opportunity for grace to abound all the more. Last verse we're going to read for today. 21. It's a continuation of the sentence. So I'll go back. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abound all the more. Okay, we got to stop there again for a second. I just thought something maybe kind of chuckle a little bit. This is what happened. Sin, transgression, judgment. We got you. Law? <laughs> See? We got you. What? Grace? Oh, we don't got you no more. That's what actually happened. Right? Sin, transgression, condemnation, law, Yes, we're nailing you to the wall, baby, because here, right here, it says you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, and you're doing those things. We're nailing you to the wall. And then that person says, but I, I, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And then the nails slip free. And the wall is left so far in the dust that you don't remember being nailed to the wall through the opportunity of the law by transgression and condemnation. Now 21. That as sin reigned in death means sin used to be in charge. Even so, grace might reign. Now reign, reign means rule. So grace might reign through, means an opportunity, righteousness given by the Lord. 
to eternal life. Now given by the Lord means an opportunity standing at the right hand of the throne in heaven to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Don't stop there. Our Lord in charge of us. You want to be free? You get a Lord who makes you free. Because He's the only one who's got the power, the means, and the opportunity to do so. Okay, so we're through the text. Now, we meditated through the text a little bit there and thought about means and opportunity. I want to bring us back to that thought. I submit to you that means and opportunity are the really the two smaller pieces of the puzzle. Remember the murder mystery that we talked about at the beginning, 100 people in the crowd? And here's means and opportunity, and you narrow it down to 95. <laughs> they were all in the crowd. At some point in time, any one of them could have slipped the knife in that person and got away with it because they all have means and opportunity. It isn't means and opportunity that narrows it down very much at all. It's motive. Who knew them? Who had a reason? Or who didn't know them but had a reason? Right? Could be somebody got paid to do it. Some could be just somebody who's a psychotic just killing strangers. Whatever. But who didn't know? Who had a reason? Motive narrows it down. Motive locks the group down to the smallest number. But even that doesn't do it, does it? I was talking to Arden about this in the car yesterday because I've been meditating on this scripture most of the week. And we're talking about how means, opportunity, motive, and now you've narrowed it down to five people. What is it then about those five people? What is it about those five people that nails it down to just one person? Any of you ever seen uh, murder, the murder on the... Orient, I'm messing up the name of it, the Chinese, the movie with the Chinese train, right? And they're, uh, Oriental Express, there you go, Murder on the Oriental Express, where in the end you find out who did it. Who in the movie? Go ahead. Who did it? Somebody. What? Everybody did it, right? They all had means, they all had opportunity, and, and what you find out late in the story is they all have motive, but even that isn't enough, right? Because you find out they all have means, opportunity, motive, and they reduce it down to the 12 people, but what was it really? I mean, what really marks the person who did the crime? It's the crime. It's the crime that marks them. They had means, motive, opportunity, they're all the same, but they actually carried out the deed. That's what does it. When you get down to five people, you have to look in their lives and start poking, and eventually you get a confession, or you get a, somebody slips up and tells a lie, or you find something, that some reason, to fake their alibi, whatever means, mode of opportunity, and it's who did it. That's ultimately what we're looking for. Notice that the character of the person is outlined or detailed or made clear by what they have done with the means, motive, and opportunity. If you have five people in the crowd who could have killed him, and you get down to five people in the crowd who could have killed him, four of them had means, opportunity, wait for it, and motive. They had a reason to kill them, but didn't. They had means, motive, and opportunity, but were not the killer. That says something about them. They had means, motive, and opportunity. They could have done it, and by some worldly logic, should have done it, but they didn't. But one of the five actually did it. So the means, motive, and opportunity is largely about what you do with the means and the opportunity. right? So you can, I, I can do it. I'm in a position to do it. I can think of a reason to do it. Am I going to do it? That's the question. So I want you to think then as we look at this text, look at what some of the things, the entities, if you will, because they're pictured as things like people, pictured as people or personalities, right? Look at what some of the personalities in this text did with their means and opportunity and I will submit motive. 
The first point was the character of a person or a thing is outlined by what they do with means, opportunity, and you could submit motive. The action that they take at that moment. Let's look at sin or transgression. What does sin and transgression do? Right? Uh, Verse... Just, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So there's the tree. Adam exercises, he has means... He has opportunity. He has motive. Listening to the serpent. Now, he didn't interject when the serpent was talking to Eve, but he was sitting right there, standing right there while it was going on. So he didn't stop the serpent. And then Eve takes the fruit and eats. She hands it to him and he eats. He's got every kind of motive. But it's what he does with his means, opportunity, and motive that slays him. Right? He sins against God. He opens the door. Sin comes in. Sin opens the door and death comes in. Sin is like this. This is what sin does. Sin opens the door to death. Worse than that, sin is a viral disease that spreads from person to person. As a sinner, you will infect everyone around you. You don't believe it? Just think for a moment about peer pressure. Most of us went through high school or are in school now in some cases. Reading a devotional to Ariana last night, as I tend to do when she's going to bed. She got about three quarters of the way through it before she fell asleep. Um, and usually I talk to her about it the next day, or we'll go back and recap it a little bit before we start the next one. So I, I guess we were running like one quarter devotional behind, you know what I'm saying? Because we're going to do the last quarter of the next day, whatever. But anyway, in this devotional, talk about this kid who he was playing ball in the house and broke the lamp, got in trouble. They glue the lamp, lamp still got a crack in it. It always sits there reminding him he played ball in the house. Then he goes out to, with his friends, and they go into the house, and they watch this movie, it's rated R. It's rated R action flick that everybody's been talking about how awesome it's going to be. And they are chanting at him. They are picking on him because he's too much of a baby or a chicken or whatever word they use to watch this rated R movie because he gets trouble, right? So then he gives in and he watches the radar movie with his friends. And he goes home and he's feeling guilty. So he prays. He's a Christian kid. He prays and he says, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me for having done what I did watching the movie. And so he feels better because God forgave him. Then he goes to sleep. He wakes up in the middle of the night has a terrible nightmare about the movie. The, the villains from the movie chasing him in his nightmare. Wakes up screaming or upset anyway. His dad comes rushing in the room. He says, son, are you okay? See, I had a bad dream. Immediately confesses to his dad what he did. His dad's like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that, son. You know? And probably there might be punishment forthcoming, but that's not, you know, this could be a form of your punishment, what's going on right here, right now. And he said, but dad, I prayed to God and God forgave me. And he says, son, you remember when you were playing ball in the house and you broke the lamp? And they said, yeah, I remember. So we glued the lamp. It's perfectly fine, right? Except for the scar. And he said, this, this dream, this nightmare that you're experiencing, it's the scar from having watched the movie that you weren't supposed to watch. And the boy's light goes on. He says, ah, now I see. Listen to me. This is how sin is. You have means. You have opportunity. You have motive. The truth is you can get ahead on your job if you lie, cheat, steal. You can manipulate your family if you let your temper get out of control. You can get your kids to do what you want if you bash them with your words. You have means, opportunity, and motive. You have every reason to do it. The question is, 
Will you do it? What are you going to do in that situation where you have means, opportunity, and motive? That's the question. And it's tempting, hence the term temptation, but there is no temptation except that which is common to man. It goes all the way back from the beginning. And with every temptation, God is faithful. Pistas theos, theos. God is faithful. He always makes a way out. So you have means, opportunity, motive, but what do you do about it? So then you sin. And that's what we do some of the time, right? But listen to me. If sin was a guy, this is the guy you want nothing to do with. He has a plan. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He does one thing. If sin was a guy, he's the doorman with his hand on the knob behind which is your destruction. He's going to open the door. Oh, it's a little white lie. Oh, it's a little thing I do. Oh, if I slack off and just don't do what I'm supposed to do, right? James 4.17, for him who doesn't know what to do, for him who knows good to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So you know the good you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. I feel lazy. Or I really would rather be entertained. Or my buddy would rather I do this. Or my wife is trying to talk me into this. Right? She doesn't mean anything by it, but you know in you that to do that would be a sin because, or your husband is like Adam. He's sitting there just letting you ramble on talking to the serpent. And you're supposed to say, no, I won't do that. And instead of doing that, you just ease up to the guy who's got his hand on the knob. And he looks so good. Means opportunity, motive. You have every reason. And then you just kind of give him a little room. And you say, okay. No one's going to know anyway. And then he opens the door. And at the very least, hear me now, at the very least, destruction, death comes in. That's the least he does. It's far worse than that. When I was a young Christian, I was, and it's going to sound really funny when I say this, but I was kind of entranced by the book of Leviticus. Like we are here all the time. It's so boring. And people are like, what are you reading that for? And it's got all the genealogy, all these rules about sacrifice and everything. And I'm like, this is amazing. I was like, there were mysteries in there that I could not fathom. And one of the mysteries, and it was pretty much when I sort of like let go and, and trusted God with it. And then I figured it out. One of the mysteries in there is that both grace and sin are pictured in the book of Leviticus. Grace through the sacrifice, right? Because God, God doesn't have to forgive because of somebody sliced the throat of a goat. I mean, please, what does that have to do with anything, right? You slice, you go murder somebody and then slice one throat and you're forgiven. I mean, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. And so, but God's grace was using that as a picture, like we talked about last week, as a picture of the salvation that was available through Jesus when that time came, right? So, so God was forgiving, not because of the sacrifices they were making, but because he was, those sacrifices were a picture of the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that Jesus would make. And I'm like, man, grace is sweet, you know? But also sin in there was clearly pictured. And then an interesting trait of sin is clearly pictured. There's a word that pops up over and over and over again, and it's got different forms, unclean or uncleanness. There's all this rituals to not be unclean, right? And I'm going, you know, how does, how does a man climbing into a bathwater, dunking his head and swooshing himself, and get out and suddenly he's clean from having touched a dead body, lied, stolen, whatever? Is that, does that make any sense? How does it make any sense? He gets in a bathtub, doosh! Comes up clean. Now we can serve God. Right? Sin is, is like a sickness, a disease, a dirtiness that spreads to everyone. 
You tell a lie, you touch your wife, she's bathed in it. You watch pornography or, or decide not to read your Bible when God asks you to. And then you sit down to dinner with your family. And as if you were breathing out pure disease, everybody at the table is touched by it. Not, this is not me. This is the book of Leviticus. Right? Sin is like that. It touches everybody around you. Even when you aren't actively sinning. And I'm thinking to myself, man, sin is Darth Vader. <laughs> sin is the emperor. Sin is every evil. Right? Sin is the monster at the end of the book. Sin is the destruction of the kingdom. Sin is, is everything. Sin is everything that Jesus took to the cross and bore as the God of the universe, holy, never having sinned himself. He took it to the cross for me. And now when I'm tempted to sin, listen to me. The next time you're tempted to sin, I want you to see the faces of everybody that you love. Because the sin and the destruction that's being ushered into your life, it isn't only going to affect you. It's going to mess with your house. It's going to mess with your neighbor's house. You go in the bathroom or in the bedroom of your house and do something you shouldn't even do, 15, 20, 30 feet away from you might be your neighbor's house and the sin in your house washes over and affects their house. Now you might like, you might later repent and, and ask God for forgiveness and recognize Jesus make intercession for you. You're going to heaven. But the effect of your sin is still there. The scar is still there. And the people, your children, people who visit your house, guy drinks the cold water that you give him. That's what the book of Leviticus says about sin. And we see it very clearly when he says when the transgression huh, is bad. It's so bad that through this transgression came condemnation. Through this condemnation, literally, wait for it, everybody dies. Sin. Means, opportunity, and motive tells me this about sin. Because sin took the means, opportunity, of course had the motive, and killed shouldn't do that. And when you embrace sin, at least when you know it's sin and embrace sin, that's what you're doing. But then there's grace. Oh, praise God for grace. There's grace. In the text that we read, grace comes in. Out of the transgressions, grace comes in. Overcoming the transgressions, grace comes in. Grace comes in like a cool drink of water. Not after another cool drink of water, but grace comes in like a cool drink of water in the desert. Grace comes in like a comforting word when your heart is broken. Grace comes in like a friend who will sit with you when there's nothing to be said. Grace comes in and proves the character of grace. 
by grace, by God's grace, Jesus took all the sins of the world on him, died, was buried, and by God's grace, rose again. Do you understand that Jesus, having all the sins of the world on him to death, then was freed from those sins because he died, but was dead. (laughs) Still dead. And then by God's grace, he came back to life. And by God's grace, he stands tirelessly next to God, making intercession for you and for me. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a permanent advocate in heaven. He will not wear out. He will not tire. He doesn't skip a beat. He's not going to miss a day. He doesn't take a sick day or a vacation. He stands there, your permanent advocate in heaven. And so just as when you are thinking about, you're thinking about dealing with the guy who's got his hand on the knob that will open the door and bring destruction into your life, you're thinking about it. In that moment, all you have to do is think about the grace that God has given and choose grace over death, choose grace over destruction, choose grace over condemnation, choose grace over transgression, choose grace over sin. It clearly is a choice between the two. And if we endure, we will also reign with Him. But if we deny Him through whom this grace came into the world, through whom this grace is given to us as a free gift that we cannot possibly deserve. If we deny Him, He will also deny us, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And by the grace of God, we have an advocate. And He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, When death was all anybody ever had, at the moment when we could reasonably say everyone was lost, Jesus took took the means and the opportunity and His motive was His love for us and the joy set before Him and died on the cross, and which ushered in then grace. And grace brought about justification. Freedom from our sin. Permission to reign with Him. Permission to be part of the kingdom of God instead of being part of our own death and destruction for an eternity. And that brings us to our conclusion. First point was the character of a person or a thing is outlined by what they do with the means, opportunity, and motive. And we talked about sin, and we talked about grace. You want nothing to do with sin. You want everything to do with grace. Our means and opportunity exist to avoid the day of judgment wrath of God. Take it. Our means and opportunity exist to glory in God. Now that's different. Hear me now. Even the trees can glory to God. But our means and opportunity exist to glory in God. Living in righteousness, justified, freed, walking in newness of life, no longer slaves to sin. To glory in God. I'm going to read one verse. Colossians 4. Maybe. My Bible is getting sticky. Colossians 4. 
you're following along in your Bible, you can flip there. Mark it. Put in your notes if you're not. Colossians 4, verse 6. And this is what it says. Let your speech, this is in the English, mind you, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And on the surface, this looks like it's talking about how we talk, doesn't it? Let your speech. But when you actually look at it, what you see is that your speech is a means and opportunity for something that happens behind the scene. The word speech there is actually lagos, which would probably better be translated, but a little out of place in the book of Colossians, considering the overall message, it might better be translated doctrine. It's your beliefs that drive you. So in other words, what, he's, what Paul is saying to Colossians is, let your beliefs that drive you be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. Grace, you know, it's how you got saved. It's what's going to take you to heaven. It's where your justification comes despite all your transgressions. It's Jesus dying on the cross for you and you now being alive with an with a intercession next to the throne in heaven. That's the grace. You know that. So you're supposed to be living like that. Your doctrine, your teaching, what comes out of your mouth and the things that guide you and the way you live should be grace. Give grace to everyone. Deliver grace in the form of the gospel. Deliver grace in the form of love to people who don't deserve it. Overcome transgressions with love. Somebody messes you up, First forgive, then deliver grace. Because if it were not for that grace, you'd be going to hell. So you deliver grace. So your doctrine, all of your teachings, everything should include grace. But notice, it's grace seasoned with salt. What is salt? Salt is knowing the difference between what's right and what's wrong. Salt is knowing how badly you hate sin. Salt is knowing how badly you resist sin. How much you do not want sin for you or or the effects of your sin to affect others around you. How much you don't want your loved ones to sin. So he says, let your life essentially be driven by this understanding, this doctrine. All of your speech, everything that you say, everything that you do, every message you deliver should always be grace. I love you. Salt. Understand there are certain things you don't want anything to do with. There is no gospel without salt. There is no lordship of Jesus without salt. This is the problem. We want to say that it was accomplished through Jesus Christ and cut off the our Lord. And you can't. It was accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who leads us to a good understanding of just how bad our enemies, sin and transgression, death, judgment, and condemnation actually are. Because you and I have never been to hell. And hopefully we'll never go there. But don't kid yourself. If you're in sin and you've not given yourself over to the Lord Jesus Christ to let Him be in charge of your life, that's exactly where you're going. Because you open the door, you let sin come in, and sin starts with, sin starts with bringing in destruction. That's where it starts at. Will you turn from sin and turn unto Jesus and grace. Jesus took all of your sins, past, present, and future. If you're not saved, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're living in the area where you are yet a sinner. And He has taken all your past, present, and future sins on the cross. But until you trust Him, 
Until you believe, for it is those who believe who receive, until you trust Him, you cannot receive the grace. For it is accomplished through faith, means an opportunity, through faith, by believing, that brings a means an opportunity, and grace comes. Ephesians 2. Will you believe? Will you trust Him? And then if you have believed and you have trusted Him, will you please listen to the Apostle Paul, God's Holy Spirit, as he teaches us exactly how devastating tarrying with sin is, even as a believer. We're back at East Toledo. my closing illustration. There was a woman who uh, affected me deeply. She was a Sunday school teacher, sang in the choir. She had a strong witness. Um, her son was riding his motorcycle one night. And a drunk driver hit him and killed him. That was Friday night. We got the word through the church to pray for her and for the man who had killed her son. I didn't know what the results were. She came to church Sunday morning and she sat in the choir. She sang the songs. She was crying. I assume she was crying because her son died. Because that sucks, you know? Then at the invitation, she spoke up. And this is what she said. She said, by the grace of God, maybe because I knew I had you praying for me, maybe because I understand just how devastating unforgiveness and sin can be in a person's life and in the life of everyone around them, by the grace of God, yesterday morning, at I think she said 9 a.m., I walked into the hospital room of the man who killed my son while he was driving drunk. And I told him, I forgive him. And I prayed for him. And I asked him to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He did not. I submit to you that that is a life lived with grace and salt. Now, if it's my son, I'm, I'm hoping God will give me that kind of strength. But I saw it exhibited in her. And I, I probably never did a meditation through a passage of Scripture on means and opportunity like this ever before a few days ago. But when I saw her forgive that man, I found my means, my opportunity... And I found within myself a motive. I want to be free. I want to be free of unforgiveness. I want to be free of the effects of sin. I do not want sin to affect the people around me. I want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I had already professed Jesus as Lord and Savior by that time. And I was learning each day what it means. And I hope you're doing the same. Understand. Sin saw means an opportunity. It came in. Gave means an opportunity to destruction, which led to condemnation, and we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Great. Jesus saw means an opportunity. He came, took all that sin, death, condemnation, and destruction upon himself, which made means an opportunity for grace, which came in and saved all who will trust. 
And now you're called to live a life of grace, which says you forgive and you serve and you love, even when it maybe doesn't make any sense. But seasoned with salt, which says you show up and speak out against sin, because sin is bad. We're going to have a hymn of invitation and close out this part of our service today. I'm asking you to nothing less than repent of sins. If you have a specific sin that's in your life that you know has been reoccurring, I ask you today to repent of that sin and, and to turn it over to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be free. And if you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you realize you have sin and that sin will forever separate you from God because you can't go and live in God's presence with that sin in and on you. You must start fresh. You must be born again. And you can do that now. Maybe you already did it a minute ago or last week or somebody explained it to you, but you never confessed it. And like Paul said to Timothy, if you deny him, then he'll deny you. So this is your opportunity to confess it and say, okay, I want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, you say, I want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ today. And you mean it in earnest. Then after Caitlin gets wet, you can get wet. You can go home with wet underwear. But do it for Jesus. Grace and salt. If you're here today, say, I am living for the Lord. But I'm not telling anybody about Him. I'm not reading my Bible like I should. I'm not praying like I should. Meditation? Shoot, I don't know when the last time I sat down and meditated on the Word was. If you can say those things, then you need to repent and turn your life over to Jesus again before a seed of bitterness develops, before God's wrath becomes so stern with you that you pay a price you are not prepared to pay to get for, because He's trying to stop you from the course of action that you have put yourself on. Be set free again today. If salty, salt has lost its saltiness, what's the remedy? There's just one remedy. That the one who made it salty in the first place make it salty again. Turn your life back over to Jesus today. I ask the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us. And if you are making some kind of a decision today, this is your opportunity. As we sing, you don't sing. You come forward and you say, this is what God has said to me today. This is what I'm doing about what God has said to me today. And if you're something Jesus for the first time, you come. If you're appealing to be baptized, you need a new church home, and you want this to be it, or, or if God's called you to some ministry, and you're just giving, surrendering into doing that, this is your opportunity to come as we sing. If you're comfortable and able to do so, and you've sat long enough, would you stand with me as we sing this song, and you respond if the Lord is leading you to respond as we sing. Have your way, King Jesus. Have your way with my heart. This is your heart anyway.
singing for a moment. Um, but when we just came, we just prayed together, just submitting some things, some, a decision, a feeling that he had to the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. Well, thank you, Ariana. She just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. This has been New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo from Father's Day 2021. We've been talking about how sin was the pathway that allowed death and destruction to come in and we don't want anything to do with sin while grace was the great gift of God that we didn't deserve that covers all transgressions. If that's what we've been given, then I guess think about how we should be living. Maybe if you're interested, come and join us at New Heights some Sunday morning at 11.30 or for Bible study uh, for adults at 7 o'clock on Tuesdays or for children at 6.30. Um, we are headed into Outreach Adventure in July with a bunch of mission activities. We're going to be out in the community and you might see us out there. If you'd like to give, you can text GIVE to 419-419-0095 and that will let you give via your credit or debit card. You can go on our website at churchtoledo.com, go to the donations page and give as you see fit. Just follow the leading of the Lord. Obviously, you should be tithing to your local church. If you're working on that and that's all you can do, then great. But if the Lord so leads you to give above and beyond that or to come and tithe the new lights because that's your new home church, something like that, we would love to have you. We're not a particularly large church, but we've got a great big footprint because we've got a great big God doing lots of cool things, and we'd love to have you be a part of anything and everything that we do. God bless you today, and reach new heights in Jesus.